Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down and discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. My name is Kevin Gary. I'm a professor at the University of Houston, and I will be your host today. With me today are Krishna Rao, Assistant Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University of Michigan, and Eric DeBerkey, Professor of Infectious Diseases and Transplantation at Washington University School of Medicine. Both Drs. DeBerkey and Dr. Rao are considered world's experts on Clostridium difficile, now called Clostridioides difficile, as well as the microbiome. So we couldn't have a better group here today. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Merck. This podcast series examines C. diff in the human microbiome. This podcast is for informational purposes only and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional activities on this topic are available at www.ashpadvantage.com backslash high risk C. diff. Thanks for joining us, Krishna and Eric. This should be a lot of fun. Let's get started talking about today's topic, Microbiome 101. So Eric, let's start with you. I'm sure lots of people are unfamiliar with this subject. Can you give us sort of a high level, quick summary of what the heck is the Human Microbiome Project? Yeah, sure. The Human Microbiome Project was initiated by the NIH back in 2007. And the original goal was just to better characterize all the bacteria that live on us and technically in us within the gut. I actually consider the gut an external surface because it's exposed to the external environment through the mouth and anus. It's not sterile. And there's several reasons why this was initiated. And one of which was that many of these bacteria that live on us and in us are not readily cultivatable. And if you take poop and try to culture it, actually the vast majority of bacteria in stool, you will not isolate with routine microbiological methods. And there's several reasons for that. One of which is, you know, a lot of our microbiology techniques actually focus on being able to recover known pathogens, which kind of makes sense. You know, being able to optimize isolation of E. coli is important because E. coli is a major human pathogen. Another reason is just bacterial competition. When you have a plate with stool, Again, our culture methods are optimized to recover E. coli, so the E. coli will have a competitive advantage over the other bacteria. It's actually been demonstrated if you actually take that stool and dilute it to the point where you're averaging one colony forming unit per microliter of liquid and you culture one microliter at a time, you actually are able to then ultimately culture most of those bacteria ultimately. But again, that is very impractical from both a clinical and a research standpoint. And so the focus of the Human Microbiome Project was to use culture-independent methods So essentially using sequencing technology to sequence the DNA of the bacteria present, and then based on that sequencing data, figure out which bacteria are present. And so that first phase was really focused just on that, who is present and in what quantities and where. And the second phase of the microbiome project kicked off in 2014, and that's to better determine how the microbiome interacts with human health. And that has to do both with how does it promote healthy states, but also how can it predispose to disease? 
And again, having done CDF research starting prior to the onset, the initiation of the Human Microbiome Project, that you know, CDF is actually kind of the best example of how the microbiome can protect against a disease state. And so it's important for those of us working with CDF to be familiar with the microbiome. Okay, beautiful. Perfect summary of probably about 20,000 plus research publications. Nice job. So we are humans. Bugs live on us and in us, and that's the purpose of the Human Microbiome Project is to understand that interface. Let's get into it. Krishna, maybe I'll turn to you next. What types of microorganisms of these bugs live in and on our body, and how do we characterize them? Maybe start broad, but since we're eventually going to get to C. diff in these series of podcasts, finish with the gut if you don't mind. Take it away. Sure. Yeah, thanks. I think that was a great setup and summary, Eric. You know, there's lots of estimates about to what degree we're outnumbered by the microbes that live in and on us. And that number has shifted, actually, I think in recent years. We used to say that we're outnumbered 10 to 1 in terms of microbial cells versus mammalian cells. Latest I've seen has shifted closer to 3 to 1 or maybe even even. But regardless, that's a lot of microbes that live in or around our body. And we're populated by multiple domains of life. This includes bacteria, archaea or archaeobacteria, fungi, viruses. The composition and amount vary from body site to body site. And this has implications in some of the metrics we discuss. So as an example, the gut has a lot of anaerobic bacteria. And this is uncommon in the lung or the skin, for example. Another thing that we sometimes talk about in terms of the microbes is not just what's there and in what quantities, but summarizing that all with one number, notably diversity, broadly speaking, is one of the metrics that we look at. But whether higher diversity is a good or bad thing, a marker of health or disease, kind of also depends to some degree on the body site. So that the healthy vaginal microbiome, for example, is often dominated by lactobacillus. And in contrast, a low diversity vaginal microbiome is thought to be a healthy state, whereas high diversity can indicate disease such as bacterial vaginosis. And this is kind of the opposite of what we usually think about or see in the gut, right? Where a healthy gut microbial community is thought to be one that's usually indicated by a high diversity. And sometimes the sign that a gut is now in a less healthy state is a low diversity microbiome. So I think there are general principles, but largely many of these things can be somewhat site-specific, not in terms of just what we think about in those particular sites, but also what microbes actually grow and thrive in those sites and sort of quote unquote belong in those sites in a healthy state. As Eric mentioned, many microbes are very difficult to grow in the lab and environmental microbiologists have been dealing with this for years and use sequencing to characterize the community in a culture-free way. And this has revealed the great diversity of microbes and how many different taxa are present. And there can be thousands depending on the site. In terms of the gut microbiome, we usually characterize the community at different taxonomic levels. And the highest snapshot we often work with is at the phylum level. And we see different proportions of Firmicutes, Bacteroidetes, and Proteobacteria, along with other phyla, but those are often the common ones that we see. And blooms of the latter, the Proteobacteria, are often seen in disease states. And I guess that's what I would say kind of at a high-level general overview of the topic. Yeah, that's wonderful. Listening to this podcast gets you a certificate in microbiology and molecular biology simultaneously. I want to focus in on ID, but we'd be remiss if we didn't touch a little bit on chronic diseases. Every time you turn around, microbiome is affecting diabetes and new weight gain and mental health. And uh, I guess, Eric, do you mind just briefly touching on this? Maybe give one of your favorite examples, microbiome and chronic diseases. What's your opinion and where's your best example? I think right now, you know, part of understanding some of what comes out in both the medical literature and the lay press is the microbiome is a hot topic. 
And so there's lots of people trying to correlate diseases with alterations of the microbiome. And definitely, I think the microbiome, a perturbed microbiome does lead to disease states. But I think a lot of it could be correlation, not necessarily causation with what we are hearing out there. And ultimately, you need well done, you know, properly done studies to try to determine that cause and effect relationship. At least in animal models, it's pretty definitive that an animal's microbiome can impact its glucose utilization and metabolism. So if you take the microbiome from an obese mouse and put it into a thin mouse, that mouse may become obese, is more likely to become obese versus mice that don't receive that microbiome from the obese mouse. And again, in people, it's very complicated and how much is cause and effect. You know, there's a company that I'm aware of that, you know, you could send them your stool sample and they'll do a microbiome analysis for you. And they'll say, oh, look, you're eating too much ice cream. And again, I, you probably don't need to look at the microbiome to know if you're eating too much ice cream or not. And again, that's probably dietary factors have a very strong impact on the composition and diversity and interactions of the microbiome. So I definitely think some are there. And I think some of the strongest correlations, like I said, there probably is something with diet. The microbiome composition can be influenced by the diet, but then that can have a feed forward process to impact then our response to nutrients we take in. And there seems to be some correlation as well with other gut pathologies, but it's been a little more difficult to define with inflammatory bowel disease. There are animal models of inflammatory bowel disease where you give a specific bacteria and you can induce a Crohn's-like state into that animal model, but that kind of magical organism that causes or maybe reverses inflammatory bowel disease in humans has yet to be identified. But based on some clinical trials of using the microbiome therapeutically in inflammatory bowel disease, again, does suggest that there is some treatment response, not the end-all be-all of inflammatory bowel disease management, but at least some additional evidence that it does play a role in human health and disease. I do wonder if a future podcast could be just this topic alone, chronic disease states and microbiome. It's freaking awesome. But, but anyways, for now, let's switch to IED. Krishna, you're attending physician of infectious diseases, so you obviously give a lot of antibiotics. And you know, yeah. like if someone's infected, you got to kill that bug that's infecting it. But you're probably perfect to then say, but there's also downstream consequences of that, of our healthy microbiome. Can you provide some comments on that, the interplay between infectious diseases and the consequences of antibiotic use on our healthy microbiome, let's call it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at the individual patient level, I mean, the first thing that you're faced with is getting the patient better. And you have to do absolutely whatever is necessary to treat their infection effectively. No question about that. However, sometimes you have several choices in terms of what kinds of agents you can use to treat that infection effectively. Some are more disruptive to the gut communities and the microbiome in general, and some are less disruptive. And part of this is just the nature of the kinds of tools we have to treat infections. It's a little bit like the difference between targeted laser strike on a military installation versus carpet bombing the whole city. <laughs> and we're kind of in the phase right now where we aren't very good at doing these targeted sort of approaches to kill that microbe of interest, but not kill a whole bunch of other ones. So we take down a lot of innocent bystanders in the guts and, you know, carpet bomb the gut. And what happens when you carpet bomb the gut? Well, you leave all these holes and you end up killing a lot of the healthy commensal bacteria that are present along with the target of interest. 
And sometimes that's okay, and the patient recovers just fine. But often those holes are filled in by bad actors that now have disrupted the gut homeostasis. And we end up in a situation where they become susceptible to various diseases and infections. And I think navigating that is challenging right now because, again, most of the infections we treat, it's not like I have a drug that only treats this particular bacterium. It often kills a lot of other related bacteria, and some of the drugs we have are very broad and kill whole swaths of bacteria. So until or unless that changes, we're always facing this sort of tension of wanting to save the patient and successfully move them past the infection that's in front of us at hand while balancing this risk of, well, what else are we doing? What other harm are we causing by inadvertently disrupting their microbiome in the process? Yeah, that's great. I love that. And uh, thinking of like microbiome disruption as an adverse event of antibiotics, as opposed to this weird scientific curiosity, I think is where we're moving towards. And I think that was perfectly phrased, Krishna. Nice job. So Eric, you're not only ID, but your patient population that you most are, are most passionate about and see the most often, I think is transplantation. And the stem cell transplant world is booming with microbiome problems that need to get solved. And I wonder if you could provide some insights and some highlights, specifically looking at the transplant patient population and microbiome disruption. And actually, this kind of follows along nicely with my last discussion in the gut immune system with inflammatory bowel disease, and that the microbiome does play an important role in regards to immune system regulation and homeostasis. Again, it's been difficult to characterize conclusively in otherwise healthy people, but the stem cell transplant population, you know, that's a very highly specialized population. And for those of you not entirely familiar with the process, usually it's done at least in adults. And, and I'll focus on adults just because I'm an adult infectious diseases physician, and I really don't manage pediatric patients. So I don't know all the indications for stem cell transplantation in, in pediatric patients. But at least in the adult world, most people who receive a stem cell transplant, it's for treatment of a hematological malignancy, most commonly leukemia, but there's a variety of other conditions conditions such as multiple myeloma, lymphoma, myelodysplastic syndrome, which it's used therapeutically for. And there's two ways that it's used therapeutically or believed to function therapeutically against these types of malignancies. One is you get very high doses of chemotherapy. And this was really thought to be the main role of stem cell transplantation in curing cancer in leukemia is that you give super high doses of chemo. So you wipe out the leukemia cells, but the problem is then you end up giving so much chemo, you wipe out all the hematological stem cells. So your body loses the stem cells needed to produce red cells and white cells and platelets. And if you don't give some sort of rescue being someone else's stem cells or giving that person stem cells back, then they're gonna die from a bleeding complication or from an infection just because there's only so long someone can live without having any white cells or platelets. And so with autologous transplantation, so that's when they take prior to giving the chemo, they take that person's own stem cells and they store them, they freeze them. And then again, they bring them back into the hospital, they get their chemotherapy. And then once that chemotherapy has been uh, enough half-lives, so it's out of the system, then they reinfuse that person's stem cells back into them. Those people have a fair amount of immune dysfunction immediately after a transplantation, but can get you know pretty close to a 
relatively speaking, normally functioning immune system, if they fully recover and don't have any additional complications and their cancer remains in remission. The allogeneic stem cell transplants, though, you're giving a stem cells from someone else. So you give, you identify a donor based on how well that person's immune system matches with the recipient's immune system. And then you give that ablative chemotherapy, you wipe out the immune system, and then you give back those stem cells, but from a different person. And so the major complication in that setting is graft versus host disease. And that's when those donated immune system cells recognize the new host as being foreign and starts to attack it. And so this is where we kind of think to some degree that's actually good. So that's another way in which allogeneic stem cell transplantations help prevent and helps treat leukemia is in addition to attacking the host, it attacks the leukemic cells. People who actually have just a touch of graft-versus-host disease tend to have better long-term outcomes, disease-free outcomes than people who don't have any graft-versus-host disease at all. But the major complication, major cause of morbidity after transplantation is significant graft-versus-host disease. And so this is where the microbiome comes in. So there's more and more data coming out. And, and one of the best studies to date was published just about a year ago in the New England Journal of Medicine whereas a multi-center study where they were able to demonstrate those people who had more microbiome disruption at the time that the new immune system started to make cells and see the host, if it was more, the microbiome was more disrupted, they had more transplant-related complications and were more likely to die in the subsequent two years than people who had less microbiome disruption. So again, it's believed that that's because when you have a healthy composition of the microbiome at the time that that new stem cell system is engrafting, then it has better regulation and homeostasis and less likely to result in severe graft-versus-host disease. You took me home, Eric. Nice job. When I was writing that question, I was thinking of that New England Journal paper, and you brought me to it beautifully. Good job. Krishna, let's take that same question, but a broader sense. When you're walking the halls of ID consult service, where are you seeing microbiome come to mind and problems, benefits? Take it away from a broader perspective of ID consult service, I'd say. I think at the consult service level, the microbiome doesn't come up that often because again, it's still largely, you know, from a diagnostics and understanding perspective in the research realm and therapeutically, there aren't that many ways that we manipulate the microbiome outside of research studies right now, other than C. difficile infection, which we'll talk about at some point later. So mostly it comes up with this idea that we were hinting at of, you know, what are the things that we do to people that disrupt the microbiome and what could be the consequences of that disruption? Eric brought up graft versus host disease as an example of this. And I think um, to some degree, that's even predictable. Again, this is not something that's been rolled out for clinical deployment, but there's at least one paper where they took samples early on after transplant and using just those early post-stem cell transplant stool samples and profiling the community had a reasonable accurate ability to predict whether that person at some point in the next month down the line would develop gut graft versus host disease. And we are seeing some progress with other disease states like C. difficile infection in that realm as well. But often I turn to on the wards, this phenomenon, this ecological principle of colonization resistance, 
And the idea being that this is an emergent phenomenon of the gut community, not something that you're going to find from any one particular bacterium or, or anything like that. But it's important for C. difficile, which is the canonical place where we see this concept of colonization resistance play out. But we also see this in relation to colonization resistance against other pathogens, including multidrug resistant organisms. When we prescribe antibiotics, as we mentioned, we try to be cognizant of this other effect that, sure, we're treating the infection in front of us very well, but how are we disrupting the gut? Are we reducing its ability to metabolize primary bile acids to secondary bile acids, which again is something that only the microbes in our body can do for us? Are we reducing its ability to produce short-chain fatty acids, which again are very important for colonic health? In fact, colonocytes rely on that as an energy source. And also, are we opening up these ecological niches in a way so that these opportunists like vancomycin-resistant enterococci or ESBL gram-negative bacteria and other classes of resistant microbes, are they now going to set up shop and then cause problems down the line for these patients? And sometimes we don't have a choice again. We always have to treat the patient and the infection that's in front of us. But if we do have choices, I am seeing that as one of the guiding principles with regards to the microbiome and helping with some of these decisions. And in fact, Eric is a co-author on a paper where one of the treatments that we use for C. difficile infection, which is fecal microbiota transplantation, has been shown in some patients to clear their colonization with these resistant microbes. And so I think whether that's going to make its way into the clinic or become some sort of common practice, I think there's a lot of science to be done before we get to that point. But those are the kinds of things I think about on the wards anyway, that are a little bit different than what we think about as researchers and scientists. Yeah, that's great. And I wonder if a future where we think of risk factors for infection and diabetes, intubation might also include what bugs are living in your gut. That seems like a logical extension. Yeah, we don't know if we'll get there. But I, you know, again, this is the whole correlation versus causation problem that Eric was bringing up earlier. But if it does look like there's at least a causal pathway between the gut microbiome state and some of these disease states, I can imagine a future down the line where one of the things that we do is we profile your microbiome to help risk stratify and prognosticate it. Not just about these infections, but also other chronic disease states. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, thanks, guys. You taught me a lot. Let's start to begin to wrap up this podcast. Let's have one final thought on the future of the microbiome. Can each of you give me like your thoughts on the future of the microbiome and an out there thought of what the next big thing might be? Eric, let's start with you and then we'll finish it off with Krishna. So Eric, take it away. Future of the microbiome, please. I think something that I'm not really making a stretch here in part because I think we're on the verge of having FDA-approved microbiome-based products for the prevention of recurrency difficile infection. So, the, you know, there's three companies that have completed phase three trials. Results have not been published, have not been peer-reviewed, but in reports released by the companies, they demonstrated that their products were better than placebo, preventing recurrent C. diff. You know, all these companies are in the last stages to kind of get to that last point where they could bring their data to the FDA for approval. So I think it's feasible that maybe even within the next year or so, we will have or be very close to having a microbiome-based FDA-approved product for prevention of recurrent C. diff infection. That's great. You're sort of saying the future is already here, which is great. A timely topic then. Krishna, thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of promising work to come and a lot of challenges. You know, we've done some of the initial hard work, the phase one of the human microbiome project of characterizing what is there at these various body sites, the gut included. But we're kind of at this junction point between now we have pretty good high resolution with the various tools that we have 
So we have a good sense of various disease states and states of health, what microbes are actually there. But what's becoming increasingly clear is that there's overlapping functions between these different microbes. So moving on to characterizing well what the community is actually doing, the functional capability and the functional output of the community is a corner we've already turned. And the second phase of the Human Microbiome Project was starting to do that with some specific disease states in mind. But that's the place where we need to be. It's almost like, to borrow a page from history, it's kind of like the early anatomist, right? The early anatomist knew about the human brain. That's not something that was recently discovered. But they thought the function was to cool the body, right? Um, and that's, you know, illustrating the difference between anatomy and physiology. And we're still turning that corner towards physiology, I think, which is going to be really necessary for some of these other disease states where the interaction with the microbiome is much more complex. That's what we, I think, need to finally translate that understanding then into therapeutics. This can be impossibly complex as one has to account for the microbes, their products, and the host, but we're getting there. And I will just end with a story of one success with that kind of approach, which is using lactobacillus plantarum co-formulated with fructooligosaccharide for neonatal sepsis. This was a story that started about 15 years ago with early laboratory experiments trying to figure out, well, what microbes can successfully colonize the neonatal gut what do they need to be co-formulated with, if anything, to improve the ability to colonize? So they settled on this co-formulation. They then did a series of initial animal studies, followed by early human studies, and finally culminated in this remarkable phase three trial. This was run out of UNMC, University of Nebraska Medical Center, by Pinaki Panagrahi. Dr. Panagrahi was the principal investigator there. And a seven-day course of this symbiotic, uh, meaning a probiotic, the L-plantarum, co-formulated with its fructooligosaccharide, a seven-day course after birth for these neonates resulted in a 9% incidence of death in, from sepsis in the placebo arm versus 5.4% in the probiotic arm. That translates to a number needed to treat of 27. The full course of this, uh, this was done in India in a developing country, the full course of this is about a dollar. So... Here's a story that started with this basic science understanding, developing a specific probiotic that could coexist in the human gut with the microbiome and the healthy neonatal microbiome that was already present there. And for every $30 spent, you literally save a baby's life. So getting to there, I think, for other disease states is the future, and we're on the cusp of it. Okay, that was an awesome finish. Doctors Rao and DeBerkey, uh, thanks again for offering us your insight and wisdom today. For all the listeners, thank you for joining the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Don't forget to check out the website, www.ashpadvantage.com backslash high risk C. diff for our webinars, podcasts, and blog posts. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP podcasts through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast engaging the experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.